Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. I want to welcome everybody to this episode of The American Idea. Today, we're going to be talking about a very interesting, important topic with someone who knows it very well, uh, the foreign policy of Ronald Reagan. And to join us in that conversation today is Professor Will Imboden. Will is Executive Director of the Clement Center for National Security at, and also professor at the LBJ School at the University of Texas. He is has a long resume, an amazing accomplished practitioner and scholar of American foreign policy of inter- and international affairs. He's held positions in the U.S. government dealing with diplomacy and national security and has now just published a terrific new book that I want to commend to all of our listeners. It's called The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War and the World on the Brink. Will Imboden, thank you for taking the time to join us today on The American Idea. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be with you. Um, you are also, I know, working on another project. Um, you're, a, you're a man who's uh, busy producing important work for us to think about American foreign policy and national security. What's the latest project that you're also working on? Yeah, uh, thanks for asking, Jeff. I very soon have a, another book coming out. It's a co-edited collection I worked on um, looking at national security in the transition from President George H.W. Bush uh, to President Barack Obama. Uh, and so we uh, worked to get a number of the previously top secret National Security Council, uh, we call them transition memos, declassified and now available to uh, to readers in this forthcoming volume. So it's, uh, uh, it's a series of assessments written by senior NSC staff uh, in the Bush White House on uh, what worked, what didn't uh, in our, our policies, you know, during the, the 9-11 era, uh, and then an effort to hand over those, the lessons learned, insights, uh, your future suggestions to the incoming Obama team. So I think it's a really interesting case study on how national security is handled in a presidential transition. And also for those in interest in, you know, the history of the first eight, nine years of the 21st century in American national security, especially in the 9-11 era, um, I think there's going to be some helpful commentaries and primary source documents there. Yeah, terrific. Um, let me let, let me recommend that to our readers. I understand the title is Handoff, Foreign Policy, George W. Bush Passed to Barack Obama. Yes, that's right. Yeah, sorry, I should have mentioned the title. Hand handoff. So handoff. Let so yeah, our listeners handoff. And yeah. But before that, make sure you purchase the Peacemaker. It's a terrific book. Let me go right to the title. Uh, Ronald Reagan, as you know, and probably some of our listeners know, was characterized certainly by his political opponents as someone who was much more interested in war and maybe even taking the country to the brink of war against the Soviet Union in the Cold War than he was in peace. But you call your title is the peacemaker. Why that title? 
Yeah, thank you for asking. And I, I've, uh, you know, a number of people, especially ones who are more critical of Reagan, have said, "Is am I being ironic? Am I being sarcastic? Am I trying to troll them? Not at all. Uh, I think a very, you know, careful and deep look at President Reagan's record shows that his ultimate goal really was peace. However, uh, you know, very important clarification here. He believed in peace through strength. He did not see the American military as the obstacle to peace, but rather he saw Soviet communism uh, and its aggression and its uh, its depredations as the main obstacle to peace. Uh, and so I think it's very clear throughout his years before president and certainly his time as president that he ultimately did want to bring a peaceful end to the Cold War. He just wanted to do that on terms favorable to America uh, with the defeat of the Soviet Union. But he was committed to trying to keep the Cold War cold and that he wanted to avoid a you know hot war, a nuclear exchange, you know, the destruction of the world in a, in a nuclear uh, apocalypse. Uh, and so um, he would often refer to his desire to be a to be a peacemaker um, at, at Reagan's uh, memorial. Uh, Gorbachev made a surprise visit and paid a very special tribute, calling him a peacemaker. Uh, so I, the term came up enough times over the course of my research and seemed to really embody what Reagan's ultimate goal was that I thought, you know, this seems to be a good title for a book. Tell us about Reagan's strategic thinking before he becomes president. It's something that people have discussed. I know that you have discussed. Tell us how his foreign policy and national security views evolve and grow to the point when he assumes the presidency in 1981. So, yes, a really important question there, because uh, when Reagan takes the oath of office on January 20th, 1981, you know, the world's in bad shape. America's in bad shape. Uh, we're coming out of, you know, some of the losses and setbacks and divisions and demoralization of the 1970s. And he's got some immense challenges, but he is not taking office in a vacuum. He's not taking office with no idea about what he wants to do or what his ultimate strategic goal is. And as you, you know, rightly ask, he'd been thinking about foreign policy for at America's role in the world and the challenges of the Cold War for 20 or 30 years before that. And I think it's important that uh, the key to understanding him is he was a president who was very much animated by ideas, was driven by ideas. He saw the Cold War as primarily a battle of ideas between the ideas and values of the free world against, of course, what he saw as the, you know, the very vile and vicious ideas of Soviet communism. Uh, and, and so he had, uh, uh, based on his conceptualization of the Cold War as a battle of ideas, he was a president also of first principles and strong convictions. Uh, he believed very much in the uh, the virtues and uh, values of uh, democratic capitalism, of free markets, of free enterprise, of, uh, of democracy as a political system, of religious faith and religious freedom. That's very central to his understanding of uh, American values and but also what a what a free society should should look like. And so from his own you know, study of communism from afar, from observing the, the Soviet system and its different satellites and, and vassal states, uh, he had just developed a set of convictions that the uh, ideals and principles of Soviet communism are so inimical and anathema to his own convictions, right? So Soviet communism, you know, official state sanctioned atheism and oppressing any independent religious belief. Of course, it's a command economy, you know, not allowing private property rights or, uh, or, or the market to market to function at all. It's a totalitarian political system trying to control what its people can think, certainly not allowing them to choose, choose their own leaders. Uh, and I know it's very aggressive and imperialistic 
optimistic. And so uh, for Reagan, when he arrives in office, he had spent you know 20 or 30 years deepening his own convictions and reflecting on uh, how, uh, as I said, uh, Soviet communism is just the antithesis of all of those. And he starts with that worldview. And then from there, he starts taking a deeper look at Soviet defense capabilities or economic figures uh, or relations with, with, its, with its satellites. But for him, it starts, like I said, with those ideas and those convictions. And that's why he has a you know, pretty dramatic new strategy he wants to employ in, in the Cold War based on those convictions. Yeah, I want to ask about that strategy, because if you think about the 1970s, mm-hmm. you've got um, you hear well pre 1970s, of course, you hear the doctrine of containment, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Keeping and I know it's something a doctrine on which you have written yourself, actually. Mm-hmm. But the basic fundamental idea, right, of saying uh, where the Soviets are, they can go no further where communism mm-hmm. is, it can go no further, we'll contain it. And mm-hmm. then you have in the development in the 60s and certainly 70s, the policy of detente. Mm-hmm. It seems as though First of all, if you could talk a little bit about those two strategies and then how Reagan's strategy as he comes into office almost seems like a third approach to it. Yeah, that's a, that's a great summary of it, Jeff. And uh, again, to elaborate just a, a little bit there for our listeners, uh, containment and detente, you know, the strategic frameworks that, uh, you know, previous Cold War presidents from Truman on up through Carter had, had employed. I want to stress this. They... Those strategies were not designed to surrender to the Soviets. They weren't designed to give the Soviets advantages, right? They just wanted to uh, preserve the status quo. They wanted to manage the Soviets and prevent them from expanding any further uh, while trying to reduce tensions and look for areas of cooperation where where where, where we could. Um, and for a certain time, those had worked in some ways. You know, in the book, I'm fairly critical of those, but as a matter of fairness, I want to say those were not you know incredibly foolish or wrong-headed policies. They they made sense at the time, but Reagan, looking at them, especially detente, realized the United States in trying to reduce tensions and kind of manage relations with the Soviets uh, is in fact ceding tremendous advantage to the Soviets. You know, we were doing our part with detente and the Soviets were not keeping their part of the bargain. They were taking every concession we made and and pocketing those and trying to grab more. And so that's why we see Soviet sponsored, you know, revolutions advancing throughout the developing world in the night in the 1970s, Soviets increasing their military advantage over the United States, right on. And every metric of the cold war, the Soviet, uh, block seems to be winning and, and we're losing. And and so Reagan wants to reverse that. He no longer, unlike his predecessors, he doesn't see Soviet communism as a challenge to be managed or contained. He sees it as a vile idea to be defeated. And this is where I go back to, he conceives the Cold War as this battle of ideas. Uh, and uh, and so he doesn't want that status quo anymore because he saw the United States was losing in, in in the status quo. And instead, he wants to go on the offense. And he famously says, you know, his theory of the Cold War is we win, they lose. And of course, that's a wonderfully pithy formulation, you know, played well on the campaign trail. But underneath it, there's a pretty sophisticated strategic reformulation of the Cold War of saying it actually is possible for the United States to win and for the Soviet system to be defeated and brought down. And really, no previous American president in the Cold War had ever thought that way. Uh, in, in, in hindsight, we can see that it works out very well. And, and Reagan is correct. But at the time, it was very controversial and provocative for him to try to reframe that and talk that way. It really was. And I'm thinking, say a little bit more for our listeners about why Reagan thought it was possible to win. 
Yeah, and this goes back to his convictions about the nature of uh, the virtues of a free society, the superiority of that model to uh, to Soviet communism. And he just did not think that the Soviet uh, system was sustainable. And again, in hindsight, we know he was exactly right. But one reason I wrote the book the way I, I did is I, I worry about as decades passed since the peaceful end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union, that we start to think that it was inevitable. Well, of course, the Soviet system was going to collapse. Of course, it can continue. Reagan believed that, but very few other people did at the time. He was quite quite radical in, in, in that respect. And so when he took office, he correctly assessed the Soviet uh, uh, Union as this perverse combination of strong and weak. It was at the height of its military strength, which is why he wanted to do our own military modernization and build up to deter the Soviet military. But in other ways, it was very weak, right? Their economy was much more fragile and inefficient, decrepit uh, than was realized at the time. You know, the political system was also very, very rotten and corrupt and didn't have the trust of its own people. Uh, the Soviets were way overstretched and overcommitted in all the resources they were expending to maintain control of the Warsaw Pact satellites in Central and Eastern Europe, and then to sponsor all these revolutions around the world, you know, especially or their invasion of Afghanistan. And so Reagan saw their vulnerabilities uh, much more perceptively than, you know, most other experts. And he, and he developed a strategy to deter their strengths and exploit their weaknesses and put pressure on their weaknesses. Um, and uh, and that that second part there again was a very dramatic departure from all previous Cold War presidents. To carry out his vision of rolling back the Soviet Union, of winning the Cold War, uh, of mm -hmm. as you say, achieving peace through strength, as he said, mm -hmm. um, there have to be key moments in Reagan, the peacemaker, and mm -hmm. you call it the Cold War and the world on the brink. Um, mm -hmm. One of those key moments for any president is picking his national security and foreign policy team. Mm -hmm. Talk about Reagan's selection of those key posts. Yeah, so uh, again, this is a, another recurring theme in the book. So while well, President Reagan, of course, is the central character in the story, it's also about his his team. And I'll summarize that they were certainly a team of rivals, right? I'm borrowing from you know, Doris Good Kearns Goodwin's classic book on Lincoln and, and his, his squabbling cabinet. So overall, Reagan picked some very accomplished, capable, driven people. But they did not get along very well with each other, and they were often competing for his his attention and, and his support. And for all of his virtues as a strategist and a visionary, he was not a very good manager, and he didn't deal with this staff conflict very well. So I'll just highlight a few of these people, all of whom are you know merit you know entire book length biographies in their own right. His first Secretary of State is Al Haig, uh, former you know uh, distinguished four star general, had been uh, chief of staff in, in Nixon's White House. Um, He's Reagan picks him partly on Nixon's recommendation, uh, and and Haig, while very capable, uh, doesn't play well with others and does not uh, properly channel Reagan's own beliefs about the Cold War. And so, after a year and a half, Reagan you know, rightly dismisses uh, Haig and replaces him with George Shultz, who then serves, I think, very capably for the next uh, the the next six and a half years as a really capable Secretary of State partly because Schultz knew he was working for Reagan and was committed to channeling Reagan's vision of pressuring the Soviets while also extending the, the hand of diplomatic outreach. 
few other highlights. Um, Jean Kirkpatrick, his ambassador to the United Nations, a formidable intellectual, the first woman to hold the role, uh, who really helps develop the Reagan doctrine of supporting anti-communist forces with American arms, you know, in in Nicaragua, in uh, in Cambodia, in Angola, in in, in, in Afghanistan, uh, supporting them to do their own fighting against uh, against the Kremlin and against uh, against communist forces. Bill Casey, his CIA director. Um, uh, again, brilliant, colorful, uh, sometimes colors outside outside the lines, but really comes in to restore the morale and effectiveness of the CIA after it had been really gutted by congressional investigations and neglect in the in, in the Carter years. Casey also shares Reagan's conviction of the Cold War as a as a battle of ideas. Casper Weinberger, uh, his very capable, formidable Secretary of Defense, uh, who serves Reagan very faithfully in uh, not just rebuilding and refunding the Pentagon, but uh, returning uh, the morale and fighting spirit to our forces and modernizing it. And you know, my you know, a lot more can be said on the the, the defense buildup, but the key takeaway is Reagan and, and Weinberger uh, design a you know, oversee the expansion of the next generation of weapon systems to outsmart the Soviets and not just outspend and, and outbuild them. And so Weinberger also a, a key player there. One of the one I'll mention in so many in the in the administration is Bill Clark, um, Reagan's second national security advisor, uh, his former chief of staff in his California gubernatorial days. Clark has been too much forgotten by history, uh, and I try to focus on him in my book as absolutely central to the uh, fleshing out and implementing Reagan's strategic vision for winning the the Cold War. And and Clark um, really builds a very effective NSC staff, serves Reagan very very faithfully there as well. Uh, and he's humble, he's self-effacing, he never writes a memoir, he's never uh, never out out promoting himself, uh, but is a very key lieutenant for for Reagan in the overall strategic vision um other key moments the, the the choice of the of the cabinet and these national security uh, officials obviously as you say is key in this interesting team of rivals as you put it um mm -hmm. but what are some other moments uh for example our listeners may remember ronald reagan calling the soviet union an evil empire which i think mm -hmm. is 1983. Yes. Um, yeah. give us two or three that in in the book and in your own thinking you think these are critical moments in Reagan's vision of winning the Cold War. Sure, yeah, and there there are a number of them, but I will confine it to just uh, just <clears throat> excuse me, just um, just two or two or three. Um, the the first one uh, is June of nineteen eighty two, his Westminster speech, uh, and I, I open open the book with this. He's a, a president who gave in some incredible speeches. I think this is probably his best one, and that's saying something because there's some other really good ones. But this this is where he. Uh, you know, prophesized, I use that word deliberately, that Marxism-Leninism will end up on the ash heap of history. And what's really going on here is Reagan is going on the offensive in the Cold War battle of ideas. Uh, he no longer, uh, and it's not just that he delegitimizes Soviet communism, although he does and says that this is destined to fail, but he also lays out a much more positive vision for expanding freedom worldwide and saying that we are going to build um, a positive vision of market democracies. And we want to see these grow and flourish in Europe and in Asia and Latin America and, and elsewhere. Uh, and so for him, it's not just showing the bad idea of Soviet communism, but it's building that positive alternative. And so that speech sets so much of the template for uh, the next six and a half years. The next key moment is the fall of 1983, and this is when Reagan follows through on deploying American intermediate-range nuclear missiles in Western Europe. Uh, and again, I won't go into the details. Reader, uh, listeners can hopefully get it, get it in the book. But it, in brief summary, 
the Soviets had deployed uh, some really pernicious intermediate range nuclear missiles uh, targeting all the capitals of Western Europe, all you know, our NATO allies, essentially holding them hostage because these missiles are only about eight minutes flight time. It can be launched, launched without warning uh, and could annihilate Western Europe. And and Reagan wants to match force with force. Uh, so he, he in some ways he calls the Soviets bluff. And even though a lot of you know, left-wing European citizens did not want these missiles there. Um, key European leaders, Margaret Thatcher, Helmut Kohl, said, no, we need American missiles to counter the Soviet ones. And so working with the Allies, uh, Reagan shows great courage and fortitude in deploying those American missiles, Pershing twos and ground launch cruise missiles. And Gorbachev, uh, you know, the, the Soviet leader, later says repeatedly, those American missiles were like a pistol pointed at our head, right? And so they uh, so those really forced Gorbachev to the negotiating table. And that is that is the third moment I, I want to point to is, you know, any number of Reagan's summits with Gorbachev are iconic. But October 1986, when they have their summit at Reykjavik um, and uh, Gorbachev is now feeling the pressure from Reagan. Uh, Gorbachev is now willing to make some concessions. But Gorbachev conditions a lot of these concessions on Reagan being willing to give up SDI, the Strategic Defense Initiative, uh, this a vision of a, a missile shield that Reagan wanted to build, leveraging American technology to protect our country from Soviet ICBMs. Again, there's a whole book that can be written just, just on that. But for our purposes, because Reagan holds the line on SDI there at Reykjavik, uh, even though in the short term, people see the summit as a failure because they don't come out with a big arms control agreement, we can look, look back now, I think that being the final turning point in the Cold War, where Gorbachev realizes he's been backed into a corner. He feels uh, no other choice but to come back to Reagan with more concessions. And a year later, Gorbachev does agree to not just withdraw, but eliminate all those uh, Soviet-deployed intermediate-range nuclear missiles. And that really is the final diplomatic breakthrough for Reagan to be able to bring the Cold War to a peaceful end. You know, I, you know, I made very clear he wanted to bring Soviet communism down, but he did want to do it peacefully. He wanted to keep the Cold War, Cold War cold. And uh, and so that's why that combination of pressure and diplomacy with uh, with Gorbachev was the was the, the the recipe he used. Before we continue with our conversation, I'd like to have one of our faculty members tell you about a special documents based graduate program for teachers of American history, government and civics. Hi, this is John Moser, chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program at Ashland University. If you are an educator who teaches U.S. history, government, or politics, our program may be just what you've been looking for. Our approach is to emphasize primary sources, since we think the best way to study the past is to read the words of those who lived it. We have a distinguished faculty made up of professors from both Ashland University and from colleges and universities across the country. And they're not there to lecture to you. We think it's better to learn through conversation about the documents. Ours is a hybrid program with two different types of seminar. The first are our week-long intensive in-person courses during the summers on the beautiful campus of Ashland University. The second are our live synchronous online seminars offered throughout the year. So if you're a social studies teacher and you're looking to deepen your understanding of America's past and its politics, please check out the Master of Arts in American History and Government program. You can do that by visiting tah.org slash programs. As you rightly note in the book, of course, not it, it's not always from Reagan's foreign policy against with the Soviet Union. It's not always from one victory to the next. It's mm -hmm. not always high moment to high moment to high moment. There are mm -hmm. some low moments. There are some challenges, problems, struggles, crises. Um, 
what stands out in your mind as the lowest or some of the low moments that Reagan had to deal with? Yeah, I'll, I'll mention two of them. And I'm glad you asked about that because I'm sure listeners have picked up at this point. My book is overall a very favorable assessment of Reagan's foreign policy record. And I think that's warranted. And I, you know, I hope they'll read it and can, can see for themselves. But it is not a hagiography. You, you know, he did make some uh, some mistakes, some pretty substantial ones. And I'll, I'll mention two of them in a, in a moment. But I think telling the true story about those mistakes and liabilities and setbacks also helps us appreciate all the more the successes, as you said, right? It takes you know, some tremendous fortitude for a president who's been knocked down to get back up, uh, you know, so to speak. So the two I'll mention are um, first in uh, October of 1983, when the Hezbollah terrorists um, bomb, do a suicide bombing uh, on the Marine barracks in in Beirut, Lebanon, and kill 241 of uh, American Marines who are there on a peacekeeping mission. Uh, Obviously, the fault for that is the Hezbollah terrorists, but Reagan had made some mistakes in the way he had deployed the Marines there. Uh, and again, the book tells the full story, but the highlight is going back to his State Department and his Pentagon were at loggerheads over whether the Marines should be there or not and what the mission should be. And Reagan had not been decisive enough in um, resolving that dispute. And instead, he had kind of left the Marines there with an uncertain mission, uh, none of um, uh, permissive rules of engagement to protect themselves. And they're kind of kind of sitting ducks. So that would be one. And the other one, we in without going on all, all the details, will be what's known as the Iran-Contra scandal, um, where partly out of good motives to uh, free American hostages, again, held um, held in the Middle East uh, by you know Iranian-sponsored terrorists, Reagan violates some of his own standards, violates American law and selling arms to the Iranians in the hope to get those released. Um, Again, as you know, it becomes a very, very big scandal. Uh, you know, there's some worries that it might lead to Reagan being Reagan being impeached. Uh, eventually, he does come clean on it. Uh, you know, makes some needed staff changes, uh, and and it's shortly after that that he goes to uh, Berlin and gives his tear down this wall speech, which is a no, you know, remarkable speech in its own right. But all the more so when you consider the context that he was a wounded, demoralized, weakened president who regains the initiative in in the in the Cold War after you know, being responsible for some pretty disastrous uh, uh, decisions with Iran-Contra. You you already mentioned some of his allies, but of course, mm-hmm. Reagan understood that the struggle, America's struggle, was not America alone. It was the West. Mm-hmm. And as you say, all free societies, uh, democratic free societies against not just the Soviet Union, but as you said, Soviet communism more broadly. Mm-hmm. Talk about Reagan's relationship with key allies. Obviously, you mentioned Margaret Thatcher, Helmut Kohl. Talk mm-hmm. about his relationship with those key allies and any others you think that are really important for understanding his efforts against the Soviet Union. Yes, really important part of the story. You can't understand Reagan's successes and legacy without understanding the role of allies. And I think, you know, I you know make the claim in the book that he is the modern American president most committed and devoted to allies of any president before or since. Um, he sees them as a really key source of American strength, um, a unique attribute that we have. He knows that our allies are with us voluntarily, right? You know, they were not coerced at gunpoint. Contrast with the Soviet Union, which didn't have any real allies. You know, it had the Warsaw Pact, but that's because those countries of Central and Eastern Europe were occupied by by Soviet troops and, and, were, and were forced there. Uh, and he also knew that the Soviets were always trying to divide America's allies from us. And so he realized, all right, well, if the Soviets feared these so much that so they're trying to divide them, that that tells us something about their about their strength. Uh, and uh, so uh, a n- number of key leaders, of course, Margaret Thatcher, you know, we, we have to start with her, the, the great British prime minister who 
uh, came to office about a year, year and a half before Reagan uh, and shared his free market convictions at home and then his strong anti-communism abroad. And even though he and Thatcher had many squabbles and differences, uh, at, at its core is a very close partnership and they really had each other's backs. Um, uh, Helmut Kohl, the West German chancellor, again, strong commitment to free markets and then to anti-communism, takes considerable political risk on Reagan's behalf to deploy those American missiles there. So this is not just happy photo ops and nice feelings with allies. These are our allies really putting their necks out uh, for, for our, our benefit. And then two others who I have to mention, um, Prime Minister Yasuhiro Nakasone of Japan, again, largely forgotten today, but he was the allied leader that Reagan was closest to next to Thatcher. Also commitment to you know a more market-oriented economy and strong anti-communism. Uh, Nakasone worked with Reagan to transform the US-Japan relationship from mainly an economic rivalry to a strategic partnership. Uh, at Reagan's urging, Nakasone triples Japan's defense spending in eight years, triples it. I mean, a remarkable increase because he wanted Japan to carry its share of the burden, didn't want them to free ride on the United States. And of course, closest to home, Brian Mulroney, the Canadian prime minister, um, who, again, uh, shares Reagan's own, you know, kind of Irish, uh, Irish background and Hail fellow well-met affability. Uh, they got along famously. But Mulroney also really wanted to align Canada with, a, with the United States on free markets at home, anti-communism abroad. And so that that quintet, Cole, Thatcher, Mulroney, Nakasone, Reagan, uh, are, are really key to understanding the advances of the free world and the positive transformations of the decade. What about his personal relationship with Gorbachev? Has too much been made of that in understanding the resolution of the Cold War? Has not enough been made of that? What's your judgment? It, I, I think it's a truly singular relationship. So I would err, lean on the side of saying maybe not enough has been made of it. I know there's been a lot of ink spilled on that. And a couple of points I want to highlight for our, our, our listeners. Um, you know, first, there is a debate among scholars and others who live through it on who deserves more credit for the peaceful end of the Cold War, Reagan or Gorbachev. I think they're both indispensable. Each of them would tell you that the other was indispensable, right? I mean, so, um, you know, we need to say that. I, however, will give more of the credit to Reagan, uh, and, and it's for this reason. Reagan takes office in January of 1981, and it's very clear now, and I try to lay this out in my book, that from the outset, part of his strategy of pressuring the Soviet system and weakening Soviet communism was to pressure it to produce a reformist leader. He wanted to strengthen the reform voices within it. He wanted them to feel so boxed in and uh, and uh, you know not having any other uh, options uh, that they would have to turn to a more reformist leader. And so I'm not saying he forces them to pick Gorbachev, but Gorbachev comes to power four years and two months later, right? So well after Reagan. Uh, and I think it's clear, at least in part, that the Soviet Politburo felt like they had to pick this reformist guy, Gorbachev, because they were feeling so much pressure from the Americans. And so that's why I titled that chapter in my book, Waiting for Gorbachev, uh, because Reagan had been looking and waiting for a Soviet reformist leader to, to come along. But then the next part is this. Um, is while they start off as rivals, you know, Reagan is committed to defeating Soviet communism. Gorbachev wants to preserve and reform it. Uh, they, over time, develop a genuine friendship. And they're both willing to take political risks for the sake of the other. Uh, ultimately, they're looking out for their own country, each country's best best interest, but really willing to take political risks. And and Reagan pushes Gorbachev, uh, you know, quite quite far in agreeing to eliminate all intermediate range nuclear missiles, to withdraw from Afghanistan, a number number of these other steps. And 
what exemplifies the genuine friendship that develops out of all this is um, their final major summit meeting in May of 1988 when Reagan travels to Moscow, his first time actually being able to set foot inside the Soviet Union. Uh, and he and Gorbachev, you know, still have plenty of issues to negotiate and differences. Um, but uh, part of their, their their summit meetings, Reagan spends a lot of time speaking personally with Gorbachev, trying to persuade Gorbachev, the atheist, to believe in God. And Gorbachev initially doesn't oh, quite know. What really? to, yeah, it's really something. And Gorbachev doesn't quite know what to make of this at first. This is not usually what superpower heads of state uh, talk about. But Reagan has come to have a genuine personal care for the the Soviet leader, his counterpart, and is personally grieved that Gorbachev is an atheist and he thinks he's missing out on you know the most important things in life, a relationship with God and belief in eternity. And so they spend a couple of hours of Reagan just trying to lay out, here's why I think you should believe in God, and here's the differences it'll make, and um, here's why I, I believe in God. Uh, again, this is remarkably unusual. This is not normally what heads of state talk about, but I think it shows the really unique uh, friendship that had developed between these two leaders. And Reagan's ability to connect with Gorbachev personally and get Gorbachev to take some of these political risks um, while still being very clear about about their differences, uh, so Gorbachev, I think, had that in mind when you know later after Reagan died, when he paid tribute to him as the peacemaker, as I mentioned at the, at the outset of our of our discussion. So it's a uh, yeah, I, you know, it's uh, it's a very unique relationship, and and if anything, I think we don't even fully appreciate just how transformative it is. Uh, I'm thinking about that relationship with Gorbachev, particularly, as you say, in 1986, 87, 88, as things seem to be warming and thawing a little bit, mm -hmm. and as there's personal relationship. We think of Reagan's domestic political critics as coming from the left. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly true in 81 through 85 or so, it mm -hmm. seems to me, at least. Yeah. But then as he warms with Gorbachev, um, he does have critics from the right. Oh, yeah. Tell us a little bit about those critics, what they say, and how Reagan handles that. Yeah, so Reagan, uh, to his surprise and disappointment, starts getting quite a bit of heat and opposition from uh, a number of conservative Republicans, especially in Congress, you know, particularly uh, some some in the Senate, who worry uh, that he's being fleeced by Gorbachev, that Gorbachev is uh, bamboozling him, that Gorbachev is not committed to reforms, is not committed to, uh, you know, reducing reducing nuclear arms and the threat to the United States. Uh, and they worry that Reagan is just losing a step or is letting his personal affection for Gorbachev uh, uh, or, you know, his, his, his desire for positive words from the New York Times editorial page, as, as some of them say. And then some, um, some conservative thinkers and columnists as well. So George Will and William F. Buckley Jr., both good personal friends of Reagan, had both been big supporters. They both write some pretty vicious columns attacking him, saying, we can't believe that you are letting uh, you know, Gorbachev uh, snooker, snooker you like this. Uh, and this is wounding to Reagan. Uh, he feels you know, somewhat betrayed by his friends. It's also very frustrating to him politically because he, he thinks he's doing the right thing. He thinks that he has properly judged Gorbachev. He thinks he's got a real chance to press an advantage here of continuing to weaken and crack apart the Soviet Union without it leading to a, nu a nuclear war. Um, and I think history has vindicated that Reagan was more correct than his than his critics. But um, yeah, he had a lot of heat from his right flank, uh, especially in his second term, and not just from the left flank. I, you've spent so much time now thinking about and living with, really, Ronald mm -hmm. Reagan. Um, yeah. And you've been on the inside. You've seen how 
national security policy is thought through, formulated, and then operationalized. Um, you've had so much practical and scholarly study of these subjects. Uh, looking at Reagan overall, what to you, and maybe this is an unfair question, but what to you is most surprising about Ronald Reagan that you discovered? Yeah, boy. Uh, so I'll mention a couple things, and these are things that were not completely new to me um, when I started the research on this, but that I had uh, no idea of the the depth uh, the depth of these right the um the the fervency of these the first is reagan's own christian faith uh, again i i knew that he you know was a professing christian and had some sense of faith but uh, again readers can get this uh, from the book but his deep personal commitment uh to his christian faith which comes out in all sorts of ways you see this in his diaries and his letters and his like his, his approach to gorbachev his belief in god's god's guidance during uh, over over the course of the cold war god miraculously spared him from death after the assassination attempt in uh, March of March of 1981. Uh, you cannot understand Reagan as a president uh, or as a you know a foreign a Cold War strategist aside from his his Christian faith. So that would be the one. And the other one is the one I mentioned a little bit at, at the beginning, but really came through is Reagan is a man of ideas and not an intellectual the way we would think of that. And he certainly wouldn't have wanted to be thought of that way as well. But um. A uh, man who did a lot more reading than is appreciated uh, uh, of books of you know deep and in-depth uh, policy memos, uh, who approached the world uh, and the role of the presidency primarily through that lens uh, of ideas, uh, and that in turn shaped his approach to material interest or tactics or, or uh, in, you know any, any number of the other concerns of the of, of the presidency. Um, and this is why, looking back, we can see why a number of you know so many conservative intellectuals were drawn to him. Uh, you know, conservative intellectuals are also animated by, by ideas. You know, conservatism is about a set of set of ideas, and and here they had a president who really really embodied embodied that too. Uh, you, some of your work, including your new book, Handoff, is mm -hmm. about, in many ways, the lessons learned and how those get translated and handed over to the next mm -hmm. administration. Mm -hmm. What's the lesson learned that we ought to take away from Ronald Reagan's uh, foreign policy and, in particular, his handling of the Cold War? Yeah, oh boy, a, a lot there. I'll just try to give a, a top line one. This uh, pivoting off my previous answer is. Um, I think he was right to start as a first principle assessing what are America's strengths uh, and, and virtues and values. Let us start with that. Uh, and then view all the other questions through uh, through through confidence through confidence in that and th those first principles, and then in turn let us have confidence, especially in the values values of freedom. You know, I know you know freedom has fallen into a dis dis disfavor in in recent decades, and I know has maybe not had such, such a such a good run, but Reagan had this uh, this core sense that. Uh, you know, people living under under Soviet communism, Soviet tyranny—that is not their their preferred way of life, right? They are not the enemy. They, they rather they are suffering under these particular systems, and the oppression of those systems is a real vulnerability. And then, in turn, the appeal of the American model, even though each country can have its its particularities, is our commitment to human dignity and, and human liberty. And that is, while not flawless, is certainly the you know the the best possible model for organize for political economy for organizing human society that the world world has seen yet and having confidence in that and that confidence can include being candor about our, our failings and our missteps and the troubled aspects of our of our history uh but 
but at, at, the, at the end of the day, coming back to that, the root commitment to those values. Um, and that I think that that can have some real implications for how we think about our challenges from communist China, for example, today. Fascinating. Reagan's farewell address to the to the nation. In the end, he says, I'm I'm what I've what we've accomplished. Of course, he doesn't know the Soviet Union is about to fall, but he's yeah. made a lot of progress. Um, he talks about the uh, re restoration of the economy. Mm -hmm. And in particular, the revival of patriotism. And he mm -hmm. calls for a return of informed patriotism, he says. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Reagan's view of his own legacy mm -hmm. in, in national security and foreign policy, um, how important did he think the re relationship with the Soviet Union and the defeat of Soviet communism was for his own legacy? I think very important. This is where we can go back to, um, you know, one comment he he had made um, during the 1980 campaign when he was flying to Detroit to accept the Republican nomination. That's where the Republican convention was going to be. And one of his staff asked him, so why do you want to be president? And he said to end the Cold War. Uh, and again, this goes back to, you know, we win, they lose. He's got this real vision there. And so now there were other reasons he wanted to restore the American economy, restore our spirit, the, the things you mentioned there. But but for him, that was always one of his key first, first, first principles. And so uh, while I, I never met him personally, I can't say that I asked this question to him directly. I do think it is safe to say that as he you know looked back on his on his time as president, that that was certainly something that he was most proud of. And yet it also needs to be said, he was not a vain man. Um, part of his greatness is that uh, he did not see the presidency as his personal project or the culmination of his life. Rather, he saw it as a stewardship and he really saw um, the institution of the presidency and the country of America is greater than him. And that's why you even see that in his farewell address. I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, kind of saying, let's not talk about what I accomplished as president. Let's talk about what we accomplished as Americans. Uh, and uh, and I think that wonderfully captures his, his ethos. In fact, I think he even said something like, people call me the great communicator. It's not that I was a great communicator, but I communicated great things. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, you, know, you, you know the word so well there, yes. Yeah. Uh, and he, as you said, saw him first himself first and foremost in foreign policy of the Soviet Union as a peacemaker. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fascinating. And that's, uh, you know, uh, the, his final words in public life on foreign policy, and I, I close the book with this, you can see this in epilogue, is uh, December of 1992. He's now been out of office almost four years, and he's invited uh, by the Oxford Union to travel to o Oxford University and, and give a, an address there. At this point, the Berlin Wall has come down, the Soviet Union has collapsed, the Cold War is over. Uh, and one would think that he might go there as kind of a victory lap of sorts. And it's a really interesting speech because yes he is happy at those uh those favorable developments and the, the advance of freedom but he almost in a more humble or mournful tone wants to war warn the free world warn the united states now that we've won the cold war let's not turn inward let's not abandon world leadership let's not uh retreat into isolation again let's not ignore the other problems in the world, ethnic conflict, genocide, uh, you know, uh, that were even now beginning to begin to appear. And his final words in that speech are uh, uh, the task of freedom is never done and the work of the peacemaker is never complete. Uh, or I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but since so that, you know, the, the work of the peacemaker uh, and that's and, and it's shortly after that that he's diagnosed with alzheimer's and re retreats from from public life. And so that in some ways was his final charge to uh, to all of us. 
Fascinating. Um, Willem Bowden, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. His book is The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and The World on the Break. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.